Um, hi everyone, my name is Amy and I'm going to be doing the Bible reading today. So we're going to read from Judges um, chapter 6 starting at verse 11, which was in your handout. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abyssalite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, the Lord, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of the Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, for I am the least in my family. The Lord answered him, I'll be with you, and you'll strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. Gideon replied, If now I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I'll wait until you return. Gideon went inside, prepared a young goat, and from an ephah of flour he made bread without yeast. Putting the meat in a basket and its broth in a pot, he brought them out and offered them to him under the oak. The angel of the Lord said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread, place them on this rock, and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so. Then the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread with the tip of the staff that was in his hand. Fire fled from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread. And the angel of the Lord disappeared. When Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Alas, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace, do not be afraid, you are not going to die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it stands in Ophrah of the Abyssalites. That same night the Lord said to him, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old. Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God um, on the top of this height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But he, because he was afraid of his family and the townspeople, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. In the morning, when the people of the town got up, there was Baal's altar demolished, with the Asherah pole beside it cut down, and the second bull sacrificed on the newly built altar. They asked each other, who did this? When they carefully investigated, they were told, Gideon, son of Joash, did it. The people of the town demanded of Joash, bring out your son, he must die, because he has broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. But Joash replied to the hostile crowd around him, are you going to plead Baal's cause? Are you trying to save him? Whoever fights for him shall be put to death by morning. If Baal really is a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. So because Gideon broke down Baal's altar, they gave him the name Jerob Baal that day, saying, Let Baal contend with him. Now all the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Abyssalites to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh, calling them to arms, and also into Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, so that they too went up to meet them. Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have promised, look, I will place a wolf fleece on the threshing floor. 
If there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you said. And that is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, Do not be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece, but this time make the fleece dry and let the ground be covered with dew. That night God did so. Only the fleece was dry, all the ground was covered with dew. An angel turns up and says to Gideon, Mighty man of valour, mighty warrior. Can you imagine that happening to you? Angel from God saying, Mighty warrior? I think I'd stand up a little taller if that happened to me. Glad you recognised how tough I am. Uh, all that working out in the gym has paid off. Uh, I get to be a hero, or even maybe a superhero, a man of valour, a mighty warrior. Well, at the time of Gideon, Israel certainly needed a mighty warrior, a hero. The Midians, we're told in chapter 6, the beginning of it, if you've got a Bible, it might be helpful to have it open because we'll be going beyond the little bit that uh, was read for us by Amy. We're told in chapter 6, verse 1, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. The Midianites come from over in Syria, east of the Jordan River. Sorry, from where you are, over that way. Uh, Because the the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain cliffs, caves and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped in the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza. They didn't spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count their camels. They invaded the the land to ravish it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. Many of the other countries that invaded Israel during this time of the judges sort of came in and camped and you could fight against them. The Midianites, they just raided whenever the crops were about to to come to fruition, when the harvest was on, and they'd decimate all the crops, get rid of all the, the animals and hive off again back home. And you can imagine that happening year after year, season after season. This swarm of locusts that leaves Israel a complete wasteland time and time again. And the Israelites are forced to go and live in the caves. They've got nothing to eat, starving to death, helpless, frustrated. They need a mighty warrior. An angel of the Lord comes to Gideon. Gideon's uh, uh, out there doing his, his work. And he tells him, go in your strength and save Israel. And this is unusual. God himself speaks to Gideon. No other judge in the book of Judges has God speak to him directly. It's more like Moses. Remember the burning bush? He had God speak to him. Well, so does Gideon. Gideon responds in verse 15, fairly humbly, pardon me, my Lord, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh. I'm the least of my family. I'm a nobody. But God says to him, I will be with you and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. There's the task. There's the mission. Although before he gets into that external mission, God gives him a mission much closer to home. Verse 25 of chapter 6, that same night the Lord said to Gideon, take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old, tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. And then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on top of this height, using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. It tells us that the real problem, the primary problem for Israel is not the Midianites. The primary problem is Israel. 
They're involved in idol worship. That's what's wrong. They've abandoned the Lord their God to worship idols, to worship these Baals. Baal was a Canaanite god, a god of storms, a god of fertility. Asherah was sort of his consort. There was an altar to Baal, a stone altar to to make offerings, and beside it a carved wooden pole that represented Asherah, that, that goddess. You might remember the Ten Commandments God gave Israel said right up front, no other gods and no idols ever, clear as glass. Why is Israel so disobedient? God keeps rescuing them from these other powers, these other nations, but they so quickly slip into worshipping idols. Well, it's helpful to know that normally with idolatry, it's not that they totally abandoned God, the true God, the one they knew rescued them. They added to him. An idol is anything that you trust to save you, trust to rescue you from what you're afraid of, the thing that gives you security. I suspect amongst many of us, we, we don't have idols carved sitting on the wall in our lounge rooms or out in our front yard. But, well, what's our idol? I, I think you'd say the idol of our culture is money, isn't it? That's what we trust. That's what we go to. That's what we think will solve our fears and save us from what we're afraid of. We've just got enough money in the bank, enough money in our uh, superannuation, enough money in our homes, then we'll be okay. And it's not that we abandon God. We just add that to God. We say God can do his bit. Yeah, we like it that we get eternal life, but there's other things we need. There's other gods, idols that will save us. Well, there's a Baal in Israel. And where is it? It's in Gideon's own home, in his dad's place. That's where it is. And Gideon does the mission that God calls him to. He completes it. He he breaks down the altar to Baal. He uses the Asherah pole as firewood to make an offering to the Lord, the God of Israel, the true God. And in verse 32, he comes out a hero. He actually gets a nickname, Jeroboam, the fighter with Baal. That's what everybody calls him now. That's who he is. That's his identity. He's a mighty man of valour, a mighty warrior. And then comes the other mission, the one he's warned about right at the beginning. So in chapter 6, verse 33, The Midianites, the Amalekites and the eastern peoples joined forces, crossed over the Jordan. They're raiding again and camped in the valley of Jezreel, just near where Gideon is. And the spirit of the Lord came on Gideon and he blew a trumpet, summoning the uh, Abizarites, his own family and clan, to follow him. Messages through Manasseh, calling them to arms and into Asher, Zebulun, Naphtali, some of the other tribes of Israel. So they too went up to meet him. He gathers all these troops and he starts with 32,000 troops. If you start to read through chapter 7, we hear the story of God whittling those down. He's told by God in chapter 7 verse 2, Lord said to Gideon, you've got too many men. I can't deliver Midian into their hands. Not that he can't do it, he hasn't got the power to do it. But listen to his reason. Or Israel would boast against me, my own strength has saved me. So now to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gibeah. So 22,000 men left, 10,000 remained. So two-thirds of his army hives off home because they're afraid. But that's still too many. So God whittles it down from 10,000 to only 300. And with just 300 men, Gideon leads this improbable but spectacular victory over the Midianite hordes, over those locusts that invaded the land. He ends up pursuing them out of the land. He calls for reinforcements, all those ones who've gone home to come back again and finish off the locust hordes. What a hero. Don't you want to be like Gideon? 
Don't you want to be a hero like that who stands up for God, who shows that sort of courage and wins great victories? When you, when you grow up and have kids, don't you want to call your kids Gideon? Whether a guy or a girl, great name, isn't it? Gideon. You know, other stuff, maybe create a new computer game. You know, first-person shooter with Gideon as the great hero because that's what he is, isn't he? But actually, that vision of Gideon is not the one we get in these chapters. If you read it selectively, that's what you get. But the historian, the writer of this, uh, this story of Gideon, includes a whole lot of detail that gives us a much more nuanced and clear picture of Gideon. That's the power of history, isn't it? It's the power of the historian. They tell the story the way they want to tell it. That cardboard cutout Gideon would only take about 20 verses to tell. But the real Gideon, the Gideon this uh, storyteller tells us about, actually takes over 90 verses to tell. And the Gideon we meet is far from that tall, buff hero, far from that cardboard cutout version of Gideon. We're actually expecting someone a little bit taller than the Gideon we actually meet. After all, there's been Othniel and there's been Ehud. Remember Ehud, the left-handed assassin who does great things for God. There's been Barak. He's, he's a bit of a blousy mummy's boy. But we're hoping for something better with Gideon. And where's Gideon when the angel seeks him out? Well, in chapter 6, verse 11, what's he doing? He's threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. <laughs> he's scared. That's what he is. Normally you thresh wheat out in the open, but he's in the wine press in this little sort of rock cave so no one can see him. You know, there's Gideon saying, ah, Midianites, help. How many Midianites are around at the moment? Well, actually, none. <laughs> They're on the other side of the Jordan. But he's still saying, ah, Midianites. He's not such a hero after all. And then when God says, uh, when the angel says, the Lord is with you, his response is a little bit less than enthusiastic. Pardon me, my Lord, verse 13. But if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, didn't the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. He whinges. Why have you done this to us, God? I thought you were supposed to be something special. I thought you were supposed to look after us. And all you've done is dumped us. Now, the storyteller has actually filled us in already on what's going on. In verse 6, uh, Israel cries out to the Lord for help. And you know that in the book of Judges, whenever Israel does that, what does God do? He sends help, doesn't he? This time he doesn't. He sends a prophet in verse 7 who says, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians. I delivered you into the hand, uh, from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I'm the Lord your God. Do not worship. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live. But you have not listened to me. That's why they're in trouble. Because they've abandoned God. They haven't been faithful and loyal to him. And the way the prophet speaks, it's like they've forfeited all rights to deliverance from God. But instead of acknowledging that Israel has brought all this on, on herself, Gideon blames God. And interestingly, in verse 14, God responds as if Gideon has said nothing, as if the cry for help is still there. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hands. Am I not sending you? 
And at that point, you think, what would any self-respecting hero do? What would a mighty warrior do when God says, go, you've got the strength, go and do it? You'd step up, wouldn't you? Superman would step up. Batman would step up and say, I'm there. What does Gideon do? Well, verse 15, pardon me, my Lord, but how can I save Israel? My clan's weak in Manasseh and I'm the least of all my family. Ah, not me, please, not me. And then in 17, he says, well, if I found favour in your eyes, give me a sign that you, it's really you talking to me. Please don't go away until I come back, bring my offering and set it before you. He asks God for a sign. I need a sign. I need evidence that it really is you, God, speaking and sending me. Now, at one level, that's fair enough, but we're starting to get a feel for the stuff Gideon is made of. He goes and prepares a whole goat. Um, uh, prepares means getting ready for cooking. And he prepares a huge uh, bowl of bread dough and, and some broth and he takes it out and the angel says, well, put on the rock over there. And then the angel does the sort of Gandalf thing. Staff, fire, it all burns up. And Gideon says, a sign. I've seen a sign. That, that, that is God. Well, will he be a hero now? Well, verse 22, when Gideon realised that it was an angel of the Lord, it really was God, he exclaimed, alas, sovereign Lord, I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Now it's, ah, God, I'm scared, I'm petrified. A man full of fear, not of valour. As he does his first mission, he's told by God to go and break down the Baal, the altar and the Asherah. And we're told in verse 27, because he was afraid of his family, ah, family, and the townspeople, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. He, he did do it. It's a bit more encouraging, but he does it at night out of fear. And you think things are back on track. Verse 33, the Midianites start to assemble again and, and cross over, and the Spirit of the Lord comes on him. You think, now it's all going to happen. And then we get the fleeces. It's a well-known part of the story of Gideon. It sort of created a whole Christian cottage industry of how to put out fleeces. If you want to know what the will of God is, if you want to know what God wants you to do well, put out a fleece taken from this story of Gideon. See, if I don't know whether to ask the girl out, I'll just text her. I'll put a little test out there, and if she answers my text, yes, I'm going to ask her out. Or what should I do? Should I do engineering or arts? Well, let's see which I get a better mark in, whether it's maths or, or English. And, and then I'll know what God wants me to do. I'll, I'll see the fleece. I'll be able to read God's mind from that sort of thing. Now, when you do better in music than either, I don't know what you do. But anyway, that's your problem. <laughs> we set a test for God so he can communicate his will to us. It's in so many books and sermons on guidance. But... That's not Gideon's problem, is it? That's not what his fleeces are about. Gideon knows exactly what God's will for him is. You see that in verse 36. Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised. He not only knows what the will of God is, he knows what his part in the will of God is. He's not looking for guidance. And he's already had one sign from God, the fire, the Gandalf moment, and now he wants a second and a third. He even knows it's wrong to ask. Verse 39, he says to God, don't be angry with me. Let me just make one more request. He knows he's really treading on very thin heist at this point with God. But he goes ahead and asks anyway. Now, he's not seeking guidance. He's trying to get out of the guidance that he's already got. 
He's trying to avoid what God has already told him to do. He's reluctant because he's terrified, trying anything to find an escape clause. But interestingly, God won't let him have an escape. God is going to use Gideon to save Israel, no matter what Gideon is like. And that whole approach to guidance, I take it, is completely misguided. You don't find out God's will by putting out fleeces, but by listening to his clear word. But despite all the assurances the fleeces give Gideon, he's still shaking in his boots. He assembles the army. God sends him you know, send two-thirds home, sent almost all the rest home, 300 left. And in chapter 7, verse 9, during that night, the Lord said to Gideon, get up, go down to the camp, that is of the Midianites, because I'm going to give it into your hands. If you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Pura. If you're afraid to attack. What do you think Gideon's feeling at this point when God says, if you're afraid? Well, he does go down. Listen to what they're saying. Afterward, you'll be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and Pura, his servant, go down to the outpost of the camp. The Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the others, and people have settled in the valley thick as locusts. Camels couldn't be counted. Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend his dream. I had a dream, he was saying. A round loaf of barley uh, bread tumbled into the camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. The friend responded, this can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed down and worshipped. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, Get up! The Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. Dividing 300 men into three companies, he placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them with torches inside. See what happens? He's afraid. Despite all that God has said, And God reassures him again. This is at least the fourth or fifth time. What with this time? Well, God's promises don't seem to work. God's signs don't even seem to work. Now it's the superstitious interpretation of a dream by a Midianite. That's the thing that works. And so he rallies the 300 men. He organises the strategy. The strategy is trumpets and jars with lights in them, like a a, a covered torch. You've got a light, you've got a, a clay jar over the top of it so it doesn't leak light. And they surround the Midianite army and when Gideon gives the, the signal, they blow their trumpets, they break the, the out, outer cover of the lights and they shout for Gideon and for the Lord. You think 300 men shouting with a light and a trumpet. Surely get us some swords out, they will help. But they don't actually need swords. Why? Because the Midianites are so petrified, they're so terrified, they're so confused that they start to stab each other. They use their own swords. Gideon doesn't even raise a sword. The victory is won without Gideon doing anything except shouting and blowing a trumpet. It truly is the salvation of God. Gideon, a mighty warrior? Hardly. (laughs) He's jellyfish, isn't he? That's what he's like. But by the end, he's a hero. In a sense, he is a mighty warrior because he's been propped up by God from every side to stand there and to win a victory. That is God's victory. What do we learn from this story of Gideon? I hope you've seen some things we learn not to be, but there's a bit more to it than that. Because we see from chapter 7, verse 2, that this story is really about God, the mighty warrior. The Lord said to Gideon, You've too many men. I can't deliver Midian into their hands or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. God is the one who does the delivering, the saving. God is so strong, so powerful, so mighty, he can use somebody like Gideon to terrify the Midianite hordes. So they're saying, ah, Gideon, 
to use him as a mighty warrior. And isn't that true for us too? We don't deliver ourselves, do we? God does all the delivering. We aren't a mighty warrior who saves ourselves. You know, when Jesus was on the cross dying for us, he didn't say, come on, Tim, you, you get up here too. You take some of it yourself. You do some of this saving. No, he did it all for me. He did it all for you. And that is the way God continues to save. He, he does it. He, he does use us, but he uses weak us. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1. The message of the cross, our message about God's salvation, is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God, it's the strength, it's the mighty warrior of God. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, and it is, isn't it? To preach about a God, a saviour, who gets himself crucified as a common criminal, that's pathetically weak, isn't it? That's dumb. Surely he could have at least employed a decent lawyer and, and, and got off. But no, he goes to the cross. And that's what we preach. Because to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ and his cross is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And he goes on to say, Paul, I came to you in weakness and great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Hey, Paul's message of the cross, humanly speaking, just looks so weak and pathetic. Paul himself was afraid. He was trembling in his boots. He didn't have that confidence, that ring of confidence that, that would lead people to believe him, to, to be convinced. He didn't say, I believe, just so you would believe. Now, he's sort of like Danny DeVito compared to Arnie Schwarzenegger. Why? So that people's faith would not be in human wisdom and power. See, we tend to think that unless we come across as cool and hip and, and winners and, and clever and smart and powerful, unless we're the prosperous ones, people won't listen. We won't win people to Jesus. They won't be attracted to the Christian gospel. But when they are attracted because we are winners, because we're cool and hip, where is their faith? It's in us, isn't it? We think that without celebrity endorsements and clever arguments from professors at university, we just can't cut it. But then people's faith is in them and those things, not in God's power, not in the gospel of Christ crucified, in what Christ did in dying for us in weakness and foolishness. That seemingly weak, pathetic event that has the power to transfer someone like you or me from hell to heaven. There is no greater power in the universe and which has the power by the Spirit of God to convict of sin and righteousness and turn people upside down. The genuine conversion doesn't result in hero worship of the speaker, the pastor, but trust in the power of God and the effectiveness of the cross. And it's in knowing God as our mighty warrior that our fears are addressed and resolved. Because we are all like Gideon, aren't we? Fears within and fears without, afraid and anxious about what might come our way from outside us and uncertain and uptight about how we might cope with whatever comes. And we go, ah, exams. We go, ah, I've got no money. Ah, my family. Ah, I might get cancer. Ah, the atheists. It would be nice if we could just take a bit of magic dust and 
get all our fears to disappear. You know, they just poof in, in, in a sparkle of a cloud of sparkles and dissolve away. But actually, what we fear is real, isn't it? You can't do it. It's there and it has some power. The cure for fear is not pretending those things aren't fearful. It's not in bravado. I'm just tough. I can do this. Now, let's learn from Gideon. So he thought the cure for his fear was escape. He kept asking for signs from God, hoping that God would actually run out of signs and he could get out of there and not have to do it. He does the wrong thing with his fear. What should he have done with his fear? Well, come back to chapter 6, verse 36. Gideon knows what he should have done with his fear. He actually says it. If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have promised. What addresses the fear of Gideon? It's the promise of God. It's been that way right through chapter 6. Back in chapter, uh, verse 14, the Lord says to him, go in the strength you have and save Israel. Am I not sending you? If I'm sending you, you'll be able to do it. Trust me, I don't make mistakes like that. If I send you to do it, I will empower you to do it. Verse 16, the Lord answered, I will be with you and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. There's the word of God, the commitment of the mighty warrior. Gideon, you can do it if I am with you. Having people go with us does make a difference, doesn't it? You want to go to the bathroom? If you're one gender, you want someone to go with you. It makes a difference. The other gender never wants someone to go with them. I can't work that out, but yeah, it's different, isn't it? I remember in high school, I was summoned to the headmaster's office. And we had a headmaster who was pretty scary, actually. Very scary. And I remember saying to my mates, anyone, anyone coming with me? And Bill said, yep, I'll go with you. And I'll tell you what, it was much easier to walk into the headmaster's office with Bill beside me than without. To have somebody with you really does make a difference. And Gideon had the promise of God that he would go with him. God, the mighty warrior... The one who sent his son to die for us, he would go with him. The one who raised Jesus from death itself would go with him. And when God says, I'll go with you, he's not just saying you'll have a bit of comfort, you'll have someone to hold your hand. For God to go with you is God guaranteeing that whatever he gives you to do, you will achieve. When he says to Gideon, I'll go with you, he's saying you will win against the Midianites, not just you'll feel a tingle up your spine from time to time. It's much more substantial than that. So can I ask you, what are you afraid of? What are your fears? Because I suspect fear controls all of us, doesn't it? It's that common human experience that is so deep and so wide in our psyches, so pervading in our experience, that it controls so much of what we do. What are you afraid of? Some of your friends might turn their back on you. At having started a degree in oil and gas engineering, your dream job has disappeared from the economy before you could graduate. That McDonald's will stop employing arts graduates. <laughs> what, what is your fear? Listen to what Jesus said. Why do you worry about clothes? What you will wear, what you will eat. See how the flowers of the field grow. They don't labour or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendour was dressed like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today, tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not clothe you, you of little faith? 
So don't worry saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? The pagans run after those things, don't they? That's what they're here at uni for, to run after those things, to get the food, to get the clothes. But your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. There's the promise of the mighty warrior. Will you trust his promise? What about being afraid of family? Our fam- if we turn to Christ, if we put our trust in him, maybe they'll oppose us. How will I cope with that if our family do that? Well, listen to this again. Truly, I tell you, no one who's left home or brother or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. That addresses our fears, doesn't it? Deeply. Truly. You're afraid of death. This is what God promises, the appearing of our Saviour, Jesus Christ, who has destroyed death, abolished its power, and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Yes, I might die, but death is not the end. I'm promised life and immortality. Or maybe I'm afraid of speaking up. This is what Jesus said. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to you. I am the mighty warrior. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. You think, what? Make disciples of all nations? I can't do that. I can't even make disciples of the person I'm in the lecture with, who's here already, let alone all nations, let alone going to countries where I might even get killed for, for speaking up about Jesus. How can I do that? Fear petrifies me. Go and make disciples, baptising them, teaching them, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. I'm not Gideon. You're not Gideon. I'm not called to save Israel as the lone hero taking 300 women with me. But all of us as Christians, if you're a Christian, are called to do this, to make disciples of all nations. And Jesus says, I will be with you. What gives us courage? Ultimately, what gives us courage? He's not dredging it up inside ourselves. You know, just, just have a bit more courage. No, that doesn't deal with my fears. What gives us courage is God's word. The promises and commitments of the mighty warrior who routs the Midianite hordes. If you're like Gideon, like I am, afraid <coughs> from inside and outside, disbelieving, demanding, dreading, then hang on to the promises of God. When you're afraid, recall the promises of God made by our mighty warrior. Rest in them. Step out in them. That's how we live. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that you save. Thank you that you have all the power. Your son is given all authority in heaven and earth. Please give us the insight to trust your promises, to stake our lives on them, to overcome our fears by them.